Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're excited to present an archival conversation with Martin Scorsese, whose new film, The Epic Killers of the Flower Moon, is currently playing worldwide, courtesy of Apple Original Films and Paramount Pictures. In the following conversation from 2011, former FLC Associate Director of Programming Scott Foundis speaks to Scorsese about Mean Streets, the celebrated filmmaker's 1973 classic starring Harvey Keitel and Robert De Niro that was a selection of the 11th New York Film Festival. Robert De Niro's lasting partnership with Martin Scorsese began with the filmmaker's breakthrough third feature, an electrifying and unforgettable depiction of small-time thugs in Little Italy that established much of what was to come in both artists' careers. Harvey Keitel, an alum of Scorsese's student feature, Who's That Knocking at My Door, is Charlie, an aspiring gangster seeking a middle ground between his profession and his efforts to lead a morally upright life. But his irrepressible friend, Johnny Boy, complicates manners with his behavior and debts to loan sharks. Raising hell as soon as he arrives on screen, De Niro is entirely at home as Scorsese's young id of Mulberry Street, equal parts funny, ferocious, and frightening. One of the most visually striking, profoundly moving American movie-making debuts in years, Raven Jackson's All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt is an arresting immersion into a young woman's inner world filmed and edited with an extraordinary tactility and attention to the tiniest detail. The NYFF 61 Main Slate selection opens in our theaters next Friday, November 3rd. Get tickets now at filmlink.org salt. Now please enjoy the archival conversation between Martin Scorsese and Scott Foundis. Killers of the Flower Moon is in theaters now. Thank you, thank you. Okay, so. Well, I, I wanted to begin at the beginning in a way and uh, ask you to talk a little bit about sort of where you were psychologically in your career as an artist when you made this film. You had done two features, Who's Then Knocking at My Door and Boxcar Bertha, and you were working as an editor. What did you feel about your position in the film industry and, and sort of how did you arrive at the place where you were actually able to make this film? Well, it was a 10-year um, period of uh, 63 to 73. I made a few short films at, at uh, the school, got some notice on those. Um, had been flown out to California a couple of times to try to do television shows or whatever I was told to, but um, the, my 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 interest was changing from films that were um, straight out comedies to uh, dramatic pictures. I tried it with Who's That Knocking at My Door, but that took about three or four years to put together. Um, it was never quite finished in a way. Um, and at the same time, I just worked as an editor wherever I could, as a documentary uh, documentary editor and that sort of thing. The main thing was always trying to uh, get this film made, Mean Streets, or it was called... Uh, Forget the original title now, but season of oh, the season Witch. the witch, yeah, <laughs> the song Donovan, yeah, because the the um, Valpurgisnik, you know, the uh, the witch's Sabbath, uh, the feast always. If you live there, and I'm, I don't know if anybody here does now, and I don't know how they do it now, but literally everything is uh, outside the window, 
Um, so the bands is playing, the orchestra, that's in your room. It's part of this craziness of the crowd. Um, uh, that's uh, it, that it reminds me of the festival, let's say, at the end of... I'm not saying that... I'm not making it... Um, a comparison with this film, but I, uh, the, the the sense of the crowds and craziness occurring, like at the end of Les Enfants de Paradis, and, um, something about the malevolent nature of a celebration, of a, of a festival, because uh, inevitably something crazy happened. There was always a fight. There was always something going on. So Anna would see this. You were living in it because the lights were up on your fire escape. The lights. <clears throat> so it's originally the, the almost like a witch's Sabbath, almost like something really on All Souls Day. And um, in any event, I tried to get this put together. It took me a few years to straighten out the writing of it. Um, and um, Who's That Knocking did get me. That and the um, doing some work on Woodstock, I was able to get out to California and um, to work as an editor on a documentary, a rock and roll documentary, another one at Warner Brothers. But at the same time, Roger Corman had seen Who's That Knocking at a Changed the, the theater owner changed the title to JR. Uh, they kept changing the title because nobody liked it <laughs> wherever it was shown. So that was shown at um, the Vagabond Theater. Corman saw it and um, had a meeting with me immediately a week after I was out in L.A. and asked me to do the sequel to uh, Bloody Mama, which uh, I said, sure, you know, was uh, Boxcar Bertha it became. But I, he disappeared for like six, seven months, and then... I was working as a sound effects editor for John Cassavetes on Minnie and Moskowitz, and um, Roger called again, and it was time to put this film together. That was 1971, I think, in the fall, and I learned a great deal on that particular situation, and that particular situation of Boxcar Bertha. We went to Arkansas, Camden, Arkansas, and shot the film in 24 days, um, which was very fast for me, and also it was the first time that I had... Uh, uh, made a movie um, uh, straight through. Who's that knocking? And all my other films, Big Shave. These were done when you had the equipment. <laughs> you know, when you can get the equipment. Three months later, you had to match what you did. It was it was crazy. But here, you know, it was every morning, every day. You went out there, and it was a discipline that I learned. Um, and also working within a schedule and working eighteen hours, nineteen hours, and that sort of thing. And also doing the hardest stuff first, which everything with the trains, real trains, first four days. And so um, uh, Corman insisted on that because he said you get the hardest stuff done first, and everything else is you'll be you'll be primed for everything else. And he was right. Um, but what that gave me, I was very happy because I didn't get fired off that. <laughs> very happy. I've been fired off a film called The Honeymoon Killers. I shot a week of that, but that's not in the not, none of it's in the film. And um, I was taken off that film, and I was uh, it wasn't uh, it was a. Uh, well, other films that I was asked not to continue, please. <laughs> well, I was a director, you know. I come in, somebody else, there's only one director, you know, but I was always acting like I was, you know, the other director there. Um, that's what I just thought. It was like some sort of monster that was turned on. You know, it's what I did. Um, in any event, um, yeah, that, the, uh, yes, uh, the, the other film I was taking off of was uh, um, Elvis on Tour. And I was editing that, but the guys who, who um, took me off that film because I was getting, I was doing at the same time trying to cast Mean Streets because John Cassavetes had told me, Marty, you know, he saw Box Cup Bertha and he said to me, uh, I showed it to him right away because he was the main support really after seeing Who's That Knocking. Uh, Jay Cox got him to see that film and he really loved it, John. 
And um, he supported me in a way, uh, emotionally and uh, like a mentor. Um, and he told me um, that, uh, you know, you just spent a life, uh, a year of your life making junk. He said, so, you know, but, but before saying that, he said, come here. And he embraced me and smiled. <laughs> There's a difference. It's how you say things. <laughs> well, it's true. You know, look, I love you, but don't do this kind of movie. Yeah, there's good stuff in it. You like the actors are fine, but you know, don't you have something you really want to do? And I said, well, it's based on this. Who's that knocking? It's everything. Mean Streets is pretty much the counter counter um, balance to Who's That Knocking, which was everything that was also happening at the same time as the events in Who's That Knocking to a certain extent. Um, Mean Streets is closer to the uh, the reality of what was going on, how we were living it. It really reflects back to the 1960 to 63 the girl groups, and uh, it was right about a month before Kennedy got shot that um, the incident in the film occurred. And so, <coughs> excuse me, in any event, going back to John, I said, yes, I have a script, and uh, so I started working on the script again. That was 1970 or 71, 71. And within a few months, uh, uh, Jay and Bernie Cox uh, introduced me to Jonathan Taplin. Uh, he had, and he had a friend, E. Lee Perry, and um, within six months or so, the financing was put together. Roger Corman offered to finance it. But, <coughs> excuse me, the story goes, of course, that after doing Boxcar, I sent him the script. And he said, and he had a meeting with me and said, Marty, you know, uh, my brother Gene just had a big hit with a Cool Breeze. I think it was called, yeah. Uh, I think it was called Cool Breeze or Cool, not the Cool World, that was Shirley Clark. Yeah. But it was a, a remake, uh, it was Blaxploitation. And it was a remake of the Asphalt Jungle in Harlem. And it was a big hit. And he said, so look, Marty, he said, I'll give you $150,000. You go to New York. Um, and if you're willing to swing a little bit and make it all black. So I said, okay, I'll think about it. <laughs> She'd never say no. you know. And uh, as I walked out, I said, I can't. No, it's just not going to work. And so I had to um, pass that up. And that's when I met Jonathan. And he... he uh, they sold Boxcar Bertha. They took it for what it was, which is a, a, a number of things, one of which was an exercise, really, uh, to get a film made. So what eventually happened was that uh, we pulled together, he pulled together the money, but I think it was $650,000, I believe. And um, uh, the same people who made Boxcar Bertha, all the Roger Corman people, made Main Streets for me. And they told me how to do it, basically. And ultimately, the big, the big change was... Um, that uh, you can't shoot it all in New York um, because we have more control here. We have the crews here. These are crews of people who worked on Corman's films, who worked on, on pictures that I'm sure Ed Wood made and that sort of thing. These are people, <laughs> no, this is the, the average, the, the, you know, the grips and the script continuity. And these are people who were not in the union sometimes and just working and working and working in the uh, underbelly of Hollywood. Um, it was quite extraordinary. And um, they worked it out for me. And I had two cameramen on it. It was Kent Wakeford was the main guy, but the first guy shot for a few days in New York. And that didn't work out. When I got to L.A., I met Kent Wakeford. They put me together with him. He was really good. He did Alice Doesn't Live anymore uh, also afterwards. But um, <clears throat> he was a gentleman and, and wasn't afraid to um, try anything, really. And so um, we shot. It was 26 days, I think. And... Um, and then I cut the film. Um, I cut it in the, the same building that the fellows who um, fired me. <laughs> well, they were all friends. I mean, they were, weren't friends. What I mean was we were, we were a 
a colleagues in a way. It's different if you have friends. Friends, they fire you. It's one thing. It's, a, it's an emotional thing. These guys said, look, Marty, we need you here. We've got to finish Elvis on tour, and the studio wants it, but you're out casting Mean Streets. For God's sakes, we've got we to gotta cut this thing, so I'm afraid we can't continue with it. I said, all right, so can I edit my film here? He said, yeah, we'll give you a room. <laughs> and so one of the guys was Sid Levin, and I, I asked Sid to put his name on the film as the editor because I was not uh, uh, in the editing union. But Sid was the editor for Marty Ritt, yeah, the uh, sounder in a number of films, and uh, he was really a nice guy. So anyway, they all helped me, you know, and I was cutting in there, and then Jay Cox would come in a little bit, Brian De Palma would come in and try to help me cut, and that sort of thing, John Davison. But in any event, the psychologically, it was, it was a big transition from New York, um, because at the time these things were sort of taking place, I was going to uh, Washington Square College. And I was living in the, uh, my mother and father's apartment on Elizabeth Street. So I was in the split world, so to speak, you know. Um, and um, cinema was opening up many possibilities for me, particularly not to, you know, to, to not live that way, you know. <laughs> um, in any event, I couldn't anyway. I was not, um, physically you have to be uh, pretty tough. You know, you can't, you got to really stand up to it. Uh, in any event, I was never that. I was more interested in being the priesthood. That was the difference, you know. And so, ultimately, the, the overriding factor in those seven or eight years was the mad, sort of passionate um, compulsion to make this first feature. And um, when you do it, you just throw everything up there that you know. And you don't worry about being polite or being, what, at that time, politically correct. Was a, just show it the way you, who you are. And they're either going to look at it and they're going to like it or not. I mean, it got, it got really good reviews in many cases. Other, other reviews were hilariously bad, really bad. I don't want to get it, but it would really. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, they had... Um, the difference was, I come from a different world. That's the world I come from. But also, it's the world of, uh, to a certain extent, I don't, I don't, not a great fan of the movie, but the movie Marty. Mm-hmm. Marty has the sense of the, um, the home life that you don't see in this film. Yeah. You see, that has a truth to it. But I, uh, it's, 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 uh, for me, it was always a little, a little much, that picture. But um, here, it was pretty, had pretty much of an edge. But I remember the Times, New York Times at the time, would have a... Um, a um, policy where if a film got a good review a week later they'd have a rebuttal <laughs> or if it got a bad review a week later they'd have a rebuttal for a good review and uh, I think we got a good one because a week later boy did we catch it Paul Goodman the, head, the headline was who cares about these people I said I do <laughs> and um, it was really scathing but it's a different world, different time. I mean, uh, um, I, it was all new to me. The, the, the closest, I guess, I uh, you have to understand that when I went to Washington Square College, it really was the first time I was part of the outside world. <clears throat> Prior to that, it was all Italian-American or Irish Catholic up in Cardinal Hayes. So when I went to NY, uh, NYU, Washington Square, there I was in the, 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 the uh, campus was Greenwich Village in 1960. You know, it was, a, it was a major change. And um, you know, as I said, I, I bought my first pair of jeans after Woodstock. 
You don't wear jeans. I mean, God. I'm just still trying to imagine the black exploitation version <laughs> of Mean Streets. Hey, you know, these guys, Fred the Williamson as oh Johnny God, Boy and Pam Greer as his epileptic cousin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh my know. God. Uh, but uh, I, 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 could I, you imagine? I, <laughs> no, I thought about it. I said, "No, we're making it." I said, no, "Wait, I can't do it. I don't know how to do it. I wouldn't be able to do it." You know. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your your co-writer on the film, oh, uh, Mardik Martin, mm-hmm. uh, because you know you came from this world, like you said, you know you saw this kind of thing out of your window, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. your co-writer well, Mardik was born in Iraq, uh, Baghdad. Yeah, an, uh, an Iraq-born yeah. Armenian. Armenian. Yes, yeah. Uh, so this is clearly he's not Armenian. His he was world, great. My teacher so. was Armenian, Haig Mnuchin. And so he put me together with him, and he spoke with an accent. He was, he would, um, he lives in L.A. now, and he would be wonderful to have conversations and also to argue with and against and for, and really supportive and structure, and um, helping me shape the script for a long period of time. We did a lot of work together over the years. My short films. Uh, oh, uh, he, he did. He was one of the first to work on the first drafts of uh, Raging Bull, Marduk. Mm. And uh, no, he he was a uh, he was a great collaborator at the time. Well, you mentioned earlier that a lot of this iconic New York movie was actually shot in Los Angeles. What were the logistical challenges of doing that and still sort of having this seamless well, New key, York atmosphere? The key was that certain scenes were shot in New York, the rooftops and uh, certain street scenes, and particularly uh, the hallways. You know, try as I could, as I as I might, I could not find those narrow the hallways I grew up in that I love, those narrow tiled hallways. I just couldn't find them in L.A. I found everything else. I found alley the alleyways were a little too clean, but we got, you know, <clears throat> I'm serious because they're also too wide. But there was that downtown L.A. If you go to L.A. now, it's all changed downtown. But Wall Street is still there, which was the Skid Row, and I grew up on Skid Row. I grew up on the Bowery basically, with the um, uh, the alcoholics and the guys just you know, doing everything in the street. So it was part of wh- what I what I know as a child. <clears throat> and um, Skid Row, uh, we were able to crash the car in L.A. because they had more control of the street at that time. And that crash, car crash scene, I shot it the, s- the second week of shooting. I shot the first week in New York, eight, eight or nine days straight, and then went to L.A., shot that the first night. It was my birthday, my 30th birthday. And then... Um, uh, after that, everything just worked out for the... Literally, it was the interiors. The interiors had to have a sense of some aspects of New York. We even found a luncheonette that looked a little like a, 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 a deli or an Italian deli that was on Mott Street. Uh, the exteriors are on Mulberry Street. Uh, or I mean, on Grand Street off of Mulberry of the, of the store. The same exterior of the same... Uh, the uncle's um, uh, uh, luncheonette. Yeah. The exterior was used also in another film called A Double Life, George Cukor. Oh, yeah. It's where he meets the waitress, played by Shelley Winters in, a, in the film. Um, but hardly anyone shot in that neighborhood. You couldn't bring cameras there at the time. Uh, the Godfather got away with it. Um, they, they, they had a lot of uh, Paramount pictures behind them. They, they you know, made a lot of money. Of it, but, but the uh, neighborhood kid, we couldn't really shoot there. My father had to talk to a lot of people and pay some money to certain people and buildings. And was quite quite upset about it but uh, they weren't very forthcoming. Um, and quite honestly, they would wanted to be private. They didn't want cameras all around. Yeah. And so I would, you know, if we were on the roof on Grand Street um, and De Niro's firing a gun at the Empire State Building, the window is in L.A. 
that he hits. And it's all done. The, the garage is in L.A. Um, the interior of the car is in L.A. I don't know, the intercutter with shots going over the Brooklyn Bridge. I mean, it basically, it was all designed for one shot to go to the next to create the impression of New York, in a way. Uh, but there were details, like we built a little set for his apartment that he lived in with his mother and his father, his mother. And the, um, over the door, on, on, uh, on the lintel on the door, I guess you call it, in the corners there were all these little designs, uh, like a rosette. And um, uh, David Nichols, who was our production designer, young guy, he, um, he checked out all the places in New York, and I said, we need this, we need, we need a quarter of a ceiling of tin ceiling, that we, moved, we kept moving around in each shot, a tin ceiling. And for the rosettes, he just put two cookies up there and painted them. So this is the idea, because the rosette was what is, it, is what it was about. Because I, I used to be able to tell um, a movie that was supposed to be New York or an interior of an apartment in New York, but it was actually a set. I could tell that because of having grown up there. And On the Waterfront was the first one I saw that had a kind of uh, uh, truth to uh, the, uh, what, the, what we looked like, what, what we lived in. Her apartment, for example, you know, where he breaks in the door. That's uh, pretty close to, you know, the size of the apartments and everything else. In any event, it was all very detailed that way. The pool, we found a great pool room in, in L.A. Um, we found a church even in L.A., the interior of a church in L.A. Um, and so it was just a matter of um, sleight of hand, really. Uh, before I turn it over to the audience, I just wanted to ask you briefly about uh, the soundtrack to the movie. It certainly wasn't the first movie to use popular music, but uh, <laughs> well, you have. However, I think Easy it was, Rider, right? Uh, yeah, and well, uh, but Easy Rider is California. You, you could also say the Black, this is New York. You could say the Blackboard Jungle also, but uh, one. Well, that's yeah, one, when but, that came yeah. on when the uh, when the uh, when the lion when the logo came up yeah. and that music started. Well, you know, many kids in the audience started dancing and rioting, and police came in, and that was it. Then the movie began. That was a, but there's a big difference. That was the, um, the rock around the clock, yeah. But, um, but I, I that was the impact of, of that was very strong. I saw that when I was about 12, very strong. But I think in terms of kind of creating an emotional temperature, this was the first movie to use popular music in that way. And, and, and I'm also just sort of curious, because the soundtrack seems to break down into kind of three parts to me. You have the the rock music that's sort of contemporaneous with when the film was made. You have the doo-wop that's yeah. maybe a sort of decade a older, earlier. Yeah. And then you have opera and, and Italian uh, well, folk music. Song. Yeah, folk uh, songs, yeah. Folk songs. So what, can you talk a little bit about, you know, sort of what each of those kind of styles of music meant for you? Well, it was literally the way you hear it, which was that uh, particularly if there was a street fest, a fest, a festa going on, a feast, because you'd hear the band playing Fasciatenera, or the Italian National Anthem, or uh, Tazza di Cafe, all these uh, Neapolitan songs, um, um, some Sicilian songs, uh, and they became part of your, um, uh, your subconscious because twice or three times a year that was happening outside the window since you were a child. And so it really became, you knew the songs, sometimes you didn't know the names, but that became part of uh, the scoring of your life in a way. That opera, to a certain extent, um, uh, lots of Italian uh, traditional songs, um, O Marianello, and all this, the great song that ends the picture, I think, is a wonderful song, O Marianello. That was the song they'd always play at the feasts uh, for the good night song. Um, uh, and, um, uh, of course, there was uh, uh, some classical that we heard um, uh, coming in through the airwaves. Um, it was country western. There was uh, 
uh, popular music and, and rock and roll. So all this stuff would, would uh, sort of go uh, weave in and out of the windows, you know, sort of, especially in the summer, as I always said, because the windows were open, the doors were open, there was no air conditioning, no fans. So everybody was like living in a kind of a, 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 an interesting kind of dorm in a way. Um, people sleeping on fire escapes. It all sounds like a very, very romantic, but actually it was pretty miserable. <laughs> But it was kind of a thing. Everybody would walk around, and you know, the men would be dressed with the t-shirts and big boxer shorts. But that was okay, yeah. because everybody understood it was hot. So you know, and the guy crossed the way in the same way, and um, and you know, if there was a, a people, of course, the doors were open, the windows were open, so whatever went on in the in the uh, the apartment, everybody heard it. And so, if there was a, a party or some sort of celebration, everybody came in. If there was a fight, very often the, your friend next door would come in and try to separate them. Um, or vice versa, settle everybody down, calm down. The heat got everybody crazy too. And this goes back, I mean, this goes back to gangs in New York or any situation where people are living huddled in a, yeah. in a, a beehive, so to speak, you know. When they got a fan, it was amazing. You got a fan. You can imagine now with the air conditioning, but uh, at that time, that's the way it was. So the music was coming in from everywhere, whether it was Ziggy Elman and the Angels Sing, um, anything of Swing or Benny Goodman or, or, or uh, Artie Shaw to, uh, you know, uh, uh, Mascagni Intermezzo from uh, Cavaliero Stacana. It was constantly floating in and out. Uh, and so you go with the music. You just go with the music. And I, I would definitely see life that way because the score was very anachronistic at times. You know, if you were seeing something really awful that was like uh, Fats Domino singing uh, When My Dreamboat Comes Home. And I can't tell you. You know, so you'd see these images. You're in a car. I mean, my brother had a car. He would drive us around the block. That was about it. And uh, he moved out with the car because you couldn't have a car there. It wasn't right. But you know the, the music. I mean, we get to the music. Uh, the, the other films, of course, were um, well. Easy Rider had them. It was '68, though. But that's uh, that's another cultural. I didn't get it. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed, but I didn't get it at all. Um, and Born to Be Wild, I don't get it. You know, so it was like, no, I don't mean to put it down. I'm just saying that it's like. It was wild to see it, but I said, wow, I don't, that doesn't work for me uh, in terms of my uh, connection to, to life that way. It's a very different motorcycle. It's a very different thing. <clears throat> and, um, well, I did see at uh, a loft of a filmmaker in, uh, in 1965, I think, or four, I forget, maybe four, in um, uh, Greenwich Village, uh, a clandestine screening conducted by Jonas Mikas of the banned film Scorpio Rising. About 25, 30 people in the room, in the loft. I never seen anything like it, you know. And that was the thing. You use music like that. We were told at NYU, you can't use that music because you have to pay sync rights. And you never get the film released. So we're always tossed between, should we get it, you know. And finally, when, when, he, when Kenneth Anger did that, well, of course, it's a different kind of thing. That's not going to be playing at Cinema One, you know. So... But he didn't, I don't, sure, he didn't have to deal with uh, yeah. the same things. And so it was the, con the conflict of independent film versus uh, uh, films that could be made at studios, but they had the independent, independent feel about them, uh, whether it was Cassavetes or whether it was, uh, oh, uh, Billy Freakin in terms, uh, later. And so, in a way, like, like um, um, French Connection, too. So, um, um, in a way, the Kenneth Anger was a very strong, uh, because it was so good, uh, the power of it was so strong, and so transgressive, I thought, and so mind-opening for me, that uh, that was the one that I really, I said, no, let's just do it. 
let's do it. We had to pay. I mean, uh, Taplin, and they paid for the music rights. And as I said to you earlier, Phil Spector is still mad at me because he claims I didn't pay him for Be My Baby and the other songs in the picture. How could that be? I tell him, Phil, you know, Phil, it's Warner Brothers Presents. It's up there. Be My Baby, the Ronettes. You know, how, what could you, okay. but he says, you know, you should have, maybe he meant that I should have asked him, you know. I should have asked him, but who was I at the time? Who was this kid calling up asking you, you know. Meantime, we just went the, the normal way and we paid. Which I believe at that time, in the Stones too, I believe at that time was very little, really. That was the first film to really uh, use a whole track like that. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Yeah, questions from the audience. We'll start in the back, uh, ma'am. Yes, with your hand up there. Yeah. Yes, you. Uh, Interesting. The question is that the movie seems like a snapshot in time. How, uh, what uh, would you update, if any of it, uh, if you were to make it today? Um, well, I, you know, the first response in my, my mind is that, uh, uh, instinctively, is that there's no way I could make an update of it today. I don't understand today. Um, you take out the elements of drugs, you take out that element, and it's, once you put the drugs in, you're in a whole new world. A lot of money, a lot of destroyed lives, um, and a different way of thinking. This is going right into Vietnam. It's a whole other, a whole other uh, kind of thinking that we were never a part of. And so if you have uh, the Sopranos or whether it's, uh, I, I just didn't get it. Beautifully acted, very, very interesting stuff. I would feel more at home with Boardwalk Empire from the 20s. Yeah. So I don't know what these, what, you know, the same group of people would be. They don't live there anymore. That neighborhood's gone. It's a different neighborhood now. Uh, I did visit uh, um, uh, mansions or bigger house. To us as children, they were mansions. They were reg regular houses, I would think, in Long Island that were owned by by some underworld figures. But we were kids and because we were friends with their sons and they would, they would take us swimming for like a weekend or whatever. Um, but that was it. That was it. I never saw... Any ostentatious use of money, um, particularly everything was kind of uh, under underplayed. Um, language in the home was never, at least the, the homes I visited, the apartments I visited, the language, the, uh, the the language you hear in this film was never used, uh, especially if you had daughters and that sort of thing. And um, in any event, it's a very different world. It was like something out of the 19th century or medieval, really. <laughs> um, and today, uh, I wouldn't know where to begin. I said the drugs change everything. It makes it change the values. It changes, uh, you know, you're into drugs. You, you want to you get the next hit. And then you, there's no more trust. There's nothing. You see, everybody goes. And there's a lot of money to be made. So it's a very different world. Um, and you have it. The Sopranos, and you have what? Is this show Jersey Shore? I have never saw it. <laughs> <laughs> I never. That's New Jersey too, you know. That's yet another world. That's another right? world. I don't know what that is. But they told me. I said, "Don't tell me. Don't tell me." Uh, yes, here. Yeah. Any Not significance really. to casting himself as the gunman at the end? Of no, the no. Um, we, in many of these cases, we just don't have the people. Then we just ran out in taxi driver. My friend got sick, and I jumped in and did the part because Bob De Niro suggested I do it, but everybody was against it. And Bob said, no, no, Marty could do it. So I did it. But in this, it was the, four, the, the second week of shooting. We had to get it done. Um, you know, what could we do? And I had to make sure that it, it was right. Uh, <laughs> nothing I could do. 
I couldn't trust anyone there. What about using your own voice on the soundtrack? Oh, uh, intercutting my voice with Harvey's. Yeah, it, it's a very you know, personal movie. So um, the rhythm of Harvey's voice is very, uh, my voice is very similar to his, I feel, uh, at times. And uh, we're very close, Harvey and I. And so we just intercut our voices. You know, really uh, didn't really matter, I thought. Oh, um, yes, here. Yeah, um, were there any specific films that had, like, a strong influence on you at the time? Like, uh, you mentioned Cassavetes. Well, Cassavetes, when you saw any particular films that influenced the pictures at the time, there was all of cinema that I had seen, let me put it that way, of course, builds to that first moment where you line up the first shot when you look through that, when you look through the, um, um, the viewfinder. Well, these days now, the video assist. But uh, Cassavetes was the one to really push us over the edge, in a way, by doing shadows. And with the new, the advent of the new equipment, the eclairs, very similar to what's happening now, only what's happening now is a complete redefinition of cinema, a complete re reinvention, in a way. It's up to you. You know, it's a whole new world and a whole new industry. Maybe not even an industry. I don't know what it's going to be. But um, everything's wide open now. But at that time, uh, that eclair camera and the smaller Araflex and all that, that opened up the way because the other cameras were very, very big and bulky, the Mitchell BNCs. I tried shooting with them. It was very difficult to get them in, even on this stage, you see. Uh, so when Cassavetes did that, and he did it so openly and honestly, um, and the style, uh, the style was in the making of the film in a way, the passion of making the film. So if you say, well, it was grainy, it looked documented, it doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. Oh, he paid no attention to production design. I'm sure he did, you see. But it's another way of looking at it. And he said, well, then we can do anything. See, we can do anything and get away with it. I mean, not get away with critics, of course, and the public, but we could get away with the style because we had to reinvent the style at that time. And so Cassavetes was the one who really pushed, pushed us to do that because uh, I always said this. Uh, people always talked about, I'm going to make a film, going to make a film, going to make a film, but I don't have enough money. And when I saw Shadows, I said, look, there's no more excuses. You know, you have video here, no more excuses. If you've got something to say, and you're dying to say it, use the video, you know? And uh, the films that were very specific to me were Ashes and Diamonds, Andre Vita's film, one of the great films. I just came in back from Poland, actually, last week I was there. And uh, um, Akatone by Pasolini and Before the Revolution. And, um, oh, God. Ivitaloni, Fellini's Ivitaloni, about the young men who are still living at home with their mothers who are 32 years old. <laughs> and so it was very uh, but uh, Akaton and uh, Before the Revolution was the one that was very very inspiring Ashes and Diamonds was and still is um, um, one of the most powerful cinematic experiences if you've ever seen it on a big screen show Vitus films here yeah yeah we've shown yeah. Um, in the back uh, straight ahead yeah pointing at yourself yeah that's Pretty much tried to avoid, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a question about um, yeah. what attracts uh, what attracts uh, Marty to making films about the gangster lifestyle, uh, which he managed to avoid himself. Well, uh, yeah, it's a it's a commitment. You know, you have to decide on to be something, and it's really powerfully. Uh, it's difficult. It's not easy. And uh, I, uh, what that is, is, is the first memories uh, growing up as a young person, as a boy in that area, uh, not knowing the difference, really. I could tell some people were 
tough or angry or edgy. I could tell that. But when you're living that way, when you're living, uh, your father warned you about certain kinds of people, and yet he has to deal with them because that's his life. Um, your, your family has to deal with them because they own everything. And um, let me put it this way. It's a lot of them, I was growing up, I didn't know, and I just took them as people. And so I found that over the years, uh, I'm fascinated by, uh, at the same time, um, being involved with the church, wanting to be a priest, hear the priest talking about love and compassion, all these uh, alcoholics are dying in the street in front of you, and all these other guys are betting numbers, and, and uh, there's violence in the streets. And for me, it really, a lot of them I knew were basically decent people, but they were somehow, uh, the life and the circumstances forced them to do bad things. Not all of them. Some of them were really, really out there, you know, really crazy. But, uh, you know, uh, I knew them to be good, <laughs> you know, um, or tried to be good. <laughs> they tried to be and they couldn't. They couldn't. I, I, that's, that's how I perceived it. I mean, how I knew it. I didn't even make a judgment on it. I say, it was just what I know. Uh, don't forget, too, that that's only a certain percentage. The rest of it is like my mother and father were living there, and my, a lot of my, my friends, uh, their mothers and fathers who try to live a decent life. But this is all around you, and it's part of a, you know, part of a uh, little medieval community, like a medieval village, in a way, in a new world. And that new world for me, I always tell the story, that new world was on the corner of Elizabeth and Houston. All I had to do was go left <laughs> to Greenwich Village. And that, that was, you know, on the corner of Elizabeth and Houston, you got a sense of this place called America because there were cars going back and forth and this land. I always tell the joke about seeing joke, but uh, it was kind of odd to see this president always playing golf, uh, Eisenhower. And, uh, you know, nobody played golf where I came from, so he was always smiling and playing golf. And uh, I, I may be made funny about it, but it was like another world. And we were in that generation moving towards that world. And so when I went, um, to the west side, six blocks to the west side, uh, NYU, that, in 1960, that changed everything in terms of uh, my outlook. I think, I think we have time for one more. Um, we'll go uh, over there, ma'am, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the question, uh, are you inspired by different things now than when you made this film? What, what inspires you? Um, n new films today, you mean? Well, I think, yeah, I think, um, uh, you know, I'm, uh, live quite a while, so it's like an issue of, I, <laughs> you know, you look around, a lot of the older films still move me and still inspire me, uh, but the world around me um, has changed a lot. I have uh, uh, two older daughters, uh, but one young one who's 12, and so that changed a lot, and the whole film, that film you go, comes out of that, that experience of being young with the child. The child doesn't know that you're older, you know. Um, so, you know, you're expected to do certain things and think a certain way. And that has been a big, a big change because not only is she, uh, so much a part of our lives, but also her friends. Yeah. And, uh, uh, so that, that is uh, a great in inspiration. And of course, you know, frustration, inspiration, all of that sort of thing. Uh, and re watching and re trying to work out a program where they don't realize it's a program. We're just going to say, you know, watch a movie with daddy, see, uh, a, a cinematic sense of, a sense of cinema history, you know, where you're not showing them, you're not preaching to them, but you're showing them bringing up baby and then you show Grapes of Wrath, you know, you have to balance it. So, uh, not on the same day, not on the same day, not on the same day, I can tell you that. 
but they're, you know, and so they know ultimately that another kind of cinema existed in a way um, that, um, and so uh, a lot of the inspiration is coming from the life around me at this point in time. Um, some new films I see, some good films from Romania. Um, Police Adjective is interesting, I thought, and oh God, there's a, there's a few, watching some old Polish films, or uh, some revisiting uh, Andre Munch's films, Passenger, and Eroica. Uh, uh, oh, um, and there, there's some extraordinary things I've seen, you know. Uh, but in the past six months or so, things have been quiet uh, as far as the viewing is concerned because we were so, Thelma and I were so uh, busy finishing Hugo in the 3D process. So, But um, no, there, there, there are some new films that I see. I, I don't really see that many new films anymore. I don't f- it's the old thing, too. As you get older, I remember uh, Thelma uh, Schoonmaker and she, uh, Michael Powell, they went to see a film uh, at Cinema One or something. And Michael, I think, was about 78 years old or so. And she was watching the film with him. He's watching the film. And after 15 minutes, he said, let's go. I said, no, the picture just said, let's go, let's go. And then he walked out. He said, um, I didn't learn a thing from that film. I just know what's going to happen. I don't have the time. Give it 20 minutes. I'm too old for this. I'm out of here. So you, you, a lot of, all of you are very young. So you'll get to the point and say, I can't watch this anymore. I know what's going to happen. I mean, you know, it's not showing me anything really interesting. Oh, Enter the Void is interesting. I saw that. That's pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, that's going into another... He's something. He was in town last week. I got to talk to him a little bit, but uh, Enter the Void is, is quite something. Um, that's kind of inspiring. So, I'm sorry? Other than film, books. A lot of history books, basically. And um, nonfiction. And I try, I'm trying... <clears throat> that was the thing. When I was younger, my, my family they were not in the habit of reading. They were working class. They didn't read any books. And so the first books were at high school, in high school, a grammar school in high school. And I, I discovered James Joyce, Graham, Graham Greene, and that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, James Baldwin, even. But we, um, uh, I had to learn over the years how to live with books, how to understand, to understand how to read a book, really, uh, not have lose patience. Uh, I was getting everything visually and, uh, and musically. Music was very important. So um, in the past 15, 20 years, I've been trying to catch up. But, you know, you start reading one thing, and you, and you go, wait, oh, wait, this has a reference to that book. I better read the other book first. And then, okay, <laughs> if you saw with Camus, you've got to go down to Sartre. You've got to go, I can't. It's like, and it's overwhelming. And if you're editing, like, late, late at night, you can come back and read a chapter of, you know, something like uh, Nabokov and, and, and say, well, hmm. I got to get back to this by tomorrow. Well, yeah, you have to stay on it. You can't put it down for a week and come back. So it's it's a struggle to do that, you know. And that's what I've been trying to do over the years. Martin Scorsese. Thank you. Thank you for bringing Christmas early to the film. Society. Thank you so much, everybody.